Let me hide, let me hide myself in Change it someday for a crown to the old rugged cross. I will ever 
Yes. 
Well, good morning, City Church. Uh, my name is Mark, and uh, it's a pleasure to worship with all of you this morning. Uh, for our call to worship, hear these words from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. Bless the Lord, all you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's pray together this morning. O oh Lord, we gather to bless your name together this morning. With all that is within us, may we bless your holy name. Help us to remember all that you've done for us, all your many benefits, God. Um, help us today by the power of your Holy Spirit to bless your holy name as we sing to you and as we receive your preached word and as we take communion together. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's uh, stand together and sing with us.
and give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. And God, let us be a generation that seeks, seeks your face, O God of Jacob. And God, let us be a generation that seeks, seeks your face, O God of Jacob. We bow our hearts, we bend our knees, O Spirit, come make us humble, and we turn our eyes from evil. Good morning. Welcome to City Church. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here. We are a church aspiring to be an authentic community, walking with God in our city. It's good to be with you. Um, once again, really timely morning to rest in Jesus and find joy in him. My goodness, even in our city the last couple of weeks as we've been going back through COVID, even walking around downtown, I have seen countenances of people shift back towards in the downcast direction. Um, and I know that surely it's affecting some of you probably more than others, but 
Um, I just want to say that I love you, and it's good that we can gather this morning and open God's word. Um, I also want to say thank you to our volunteers. This is one of the hardest weeks of the entire year, other than the week after Christmas, uh, to have volunteers here uh, singing um, and doing children's ministry and hospitality, uh, because this is the break before our semester, our fall semester resumes. So I want to say in particular thank you to uh, Mark and Gabby for leading this morning and making our worship happen. Really thankful for them. And if you see a hospitality member, if you are a hospitality member, if you see a children's ministry person, give them a high five or whatever you feel comfortable with and just thank them for being here and making it possible uh, for us to worship this morning. Um, I would love to get to know you, especially if you're somewhat new in the life of our church. Um, you can chat with me after the service. I'd love to have a conversation. We also have a bulletin that we give you when you walk in. That has a connection card. Please consider filling that out uh, with your prayer request or just say hello, put your name on it, indicate any interest that you have in the life of our church. Uh, feel free to ask questions using that card. So that's a resource that's available for you. We also have on the hospitality table in the back, we have an even bigger bulletin, a monthly bulletin that has more information about our church beyond what you see in the, in the smaller bulletin. I'll, I'll reference this again later, but I want to make sure that you they know that that's available. We worship a generous God. Part of our responsive worship as the people of God is giving generously. You can give online, um, citychurchgnv.com slash give, or there's a brown box in the back of the sanctuary, and that's available for you as well. We have a couple of announcements. Um, our youth ministry is very close to launching. We were going to do a Saturday evening kind of big launch and then a Bible study on Tuesday, but we're actually, we've combined that all into Tuesday night. So um, that will be... The 17th, we're using the gospel-centered life for teens. So on the 17th, uh, it's a Tuesday evening here at City Church. We're launching, for the first time ever, an organized uh, youth ministry. We did an interview with Jay and our staff a few weeks ago to tell you more about what that's going to be like. We'll, when that day comes, we'll kind of remind you what we're doing and how you can be involved. And a number of you have indicated interest in helping with our youth, um, mentoring them. And so we will be in touch with you in particular. So I know that's coming, and that's a, that, that's a big deal in the life of our church, and we're just really excited that's around the corner. Um, I also want to let you know that we now are in the habit, as of about a year or so ago, of starting each kind of segment of the year with a week of fasting and prayer. Um, and that is coming up, not this week, not the week after that, but August 23rd through the 27th. Uh, we will be gathering every evening at 5.30 at the white tents that are kind of catty-corner across the street from our church. So every night, 23rd through the 27th, we will be praying there. 30 minutes of prayer, sometimes 35, 40 minutes. We'd love to see you there. And what we encourage you to do is actually consider, if you're able to do this medically, physically, is to actually fast uh, during the lunch hour. So eat breakfast, fast during lunch, pray during the lunch hour, uh, and then join us at 5.30 for prayer and then on your own or maybe with people that came to prayer break the fast with dinner after that, maybe go somewhere and eat downtown. Uh, we really believe that if we want to see the Lord do miraculous things, spiritually, physically, emotionally in the city, then we need to be in prayer. Otherwise, it's not happening. Um, and we don't want to be a church that prays. <laughs> we want to be a praying church. We want this to be a culture. Um, so hopefully doing things like this week of prayer will um, motivate you to uh, not wait until a week of fasting and prayer to fast and pray um, regularly, but hopefully this can be a part of launching this year. And, and I mean, again, a great, this is a really good year to be praying and fasting together as a church family. So I hope that we will see you there. And again, that's at the, if it's raining, we'll come inside to the sanctuary, but generally speaking, we like to be outside in the middle of downtown. It's kind of a neat dynamic praying out there underneath the tent. You can bring your kids, whatever you want to do. It's super casual. Uh, come be a part of it. 
Because uh, we're living in difficult and fraught times, I, I just want to give two sort of joyous um, announcements here. Number one, and uh, some of you may have seen, we wrote a letter a couple months ago uh, to the church on Realm, which is our intranet, and you can sign up for Realm on the hospitality table in the back, tap, tap, chat with me about it. We sent out a letter saying, hey, for the first time in the life of our church in you know, basically 10 years, we're running a bit of a budget deficit. Um, a generosity deficit, you might say. It wasn't huge, but it was large enough where we say, hey, let's let our church know about it. Um, we were like half a month or so behind on giving. We're getting to the point like, hey, just so you know. So in the span of only two months, we are now $500 ahead on our budget. So we've made up that whole deficit, um, and it's happened in two ways. Number one, you have been giving generously. Uh, we're still a little bit behind on like our internal tithing, but we're making up the, the gap very quickly. But I want to let you know that alumni from our church heard about the deficit and gave generously and helped us get to where we are right now. So people that don't even go here anymore, which is really amazing to think about and consider. So praise God for that. That is a joyous consideration. Number two, um, our community groups finally are launching fully this week. Some of them already began. Uh, the rest of them are starting this week. I think maybe one or two are starting next week. Uh, but basically, they're launching today. And so what we want to do... I think there's only a few of us here. Anyone who's hosting or leading a community group, if you feel comfortable, I'd love for you to come up and just stand um, in front of this table for a minute. I want to pray for you and commission you. We have nine groups here in the life of our church. They meet on different um, nights of the week um, in different places, and that's intentional. So hopefully everybody in the life of our church can find a group that works for them uh, schedule-wise We have a better group than I was anticipating. This is actually really encouraging. Um, so these folks, you know what I should, I'm just going to, I'm doing, I'm doing it. Could you just mention real quickly your name and what group you're a part of, which one you're leading and or hosting? That would be great. Mark Mansfield, CG Uptown. Um, Benjamin Avoda, co-lead CG Uptown with Mark. Leslie, co-leads with the two of them at CG Uptown. <laughs> uh, I'm Zach. I'm at CG Capri. We just had a name change, but it's Capri. <laughs> uh, Marion hosting Capri. Used to be Thornbrook. I'm Kristen Flanagan, and we are um, CG Raintree. We meet on Sunday nights. Um, we are a new group, so we are CG Glen Springs, and it will be myself and my husband Tanner. I'm Chelsea, and we're hosting with Ryan and Katie Harding, and we are Tuesday nights. Hello, I'm Justin Seitz, um, CG Pleasant Street, and we meet on Thursday nights. Woo woo. And I'm Gabby Perone, and I host CG Pleasant Street. Uh, Alex Payne, and co-leading at Pine Hills. Meredith Bogatz and co-leading at CG Capri. Corazon Valentine and uh, Pine Hill. Josh Valentine, Pine Hill, Sunday night. Thank you. <laughs> so hopefully that gives you a better sense of uh, the faces that go with these group names. Um, I would they would be happy, I think they are, they'll be moderately happy to talk to you. I think they would love to talk to you after the service. Um, you can find a list of all of our group names um, and times on the back of the monthly bulletin. We also now have little cards that you can take 
on the table for every single community group that has uh, name of the group, when it meets, uh, address of the group, and then contact information. So you can pick up as many of those cards. So I say, hey, I'm interested in three groups. Pick up those three cards, um, and then you are very welcome to come to any one of these groups. Uh, all of our groups at City Church are open at all times. We eat together. We study God's word. We pray. We serve our city. We do a lot of things. We encourage everyone in the life of our church to be a part of this. Um, so what I'm going to do is I was thinking this morning, kind of changed my mind. I, was, I had a prayer, but now I'm going to pray a different prayer because I just think we need a lot of joy in the Lord right now. And so what I want to pray for these leaders about is that they would have that kind of joy in Jesus in particular as they start to lead and host these groups. So let me pray. Would you pray with me as we pray over these leaders? O Lord, all of your ways of mercy tend to and end in your delight. You wept, sorrowed, suffered, that we might rejoice. For you have sent the Holy Spirit, multiplied your promises, showed us our future happiness in giving us a living fountain. You are preparing joy for us and us for joy. We pray for joy, wait for joy, long for joy. Give us more than we can hold, desire, think of. Measure out to us our times and degrees of joy at our work, business, and duties. If we weep at night, give us joy in the morning. Let us rest in the thought of your love, pardon for sin, our title to heaven, our future unspotted state. We are unworthy recipients of your grace. We often disesteem your blood and slight your love, but can in repentance draw water from the well of your joyous forgiveness. Let our hearts leap towards the eternal Sabbath, where the work of redemption, sanctification, preservation, and glorification is finished and perfected forever. Where you will rejoice over us with joy. There is no joy like the joy of heaven. For in that state, there are no more sad divisions, unchristian quarrels, contentions, evil designs, weariness, hunger, cold, sadness, sin, suffering, persecutions, or toils of duty. O healthful place where none is sick, O happy land where all are kind, O holy assembly where all are priests, a free estate when none are servants except to you. Bring us speedily to the land of joy. And Lord, joining with the Puritans in that prayer, I do pray that all of these leaders would experience fountains of joy in the Lord this year, and that when there is morning in the evening that they would wake up joyously, rejoicing in the Lord together. Um, pray for perseverance in a year that will certainly be difficult to manage in some ways, but we also pray that in the midst of that difficulty, there would be this bloom of uh, righteous spiritual fruit that, that blows our socks off. I pray that these groups would be hospitable. I pray that you would protect all of these leaders and hosts from the designs of Satan who, who seeks to uh, kill and destroy. And I do, I just pray that many, many people in our church family would be blessed by the ministry of these groups, that people that don't know Jesus would find Jesus through the ministry of these groups, that neighbors and coworkers would come to these groups. We love you, Lord, and we're so blessed that all of these people would step up and make these groups possible. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Can we clap for them? And Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13. This is our last message in our series. 
in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are one literary unit in the Hebrew Bible. They go together. We started this series um, back in June, and I think so, I hope so. And we're wrapping it up now, and then we'll have a few weeks where we're talking about our, our vision and mission as a church family, and then uh, starting four weeks from now, we'll be doing a series in the book of Second Corinthians. So if you want to pre-read, I know all of you do, you have time to go through that book probably 30, 40 times before we preach through it, so go ahead and get started. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, I'm going to be reading verses 4 through 18, and then 23 through 31. 4 through 18, and then 23 through 31. If you have a Bible, we encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us, or a phone, whatever you have that has the text of God's word on it. We will also put the scripture passage here up on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 13, this is verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Medaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day that they sold food. Tyrians, who also lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now we're jumping to verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there is no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. 
Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This passage is something, isn't it? So let's pray over it. Let's ask God to work in it and through us by the power of his spirit. Lord, we need help. I mean, just in a general sense, you know. We are weak people, and we need you to work always, but especially when we encounter your word, that we might rightly understand a text, especially a text as complicated and in some ways culturally foreign to us as this. Pray that you would be with us as we wrap this series, that everything would come together well by your grace thematically, and that we would leave here um, a changed and transformed people. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not very many of us like tragic endings. A lot of us do not like tragic endings. Uh, you know, the endings where the, the hero fails completely, the, the endings where the hero maybe dies. Sometimes the hero fails and dies. Of course, there's always those, you know, sophisticated film connoisseurs who beg to differ, right? You know, the people whose, whose favorite movie is something like Life is Beautiful or, or The Fault in Our Stars. The people that, that tell us that it's the, it's the tragic films, it's the sad films that have, you know, more artistic integrity and complexity, and they're more grounded in reality and, and blah, blah, blah. But we normal and apparently simple-minded people, we don't like tragic endings. We like the happy, uplifting endings. We like, you know, Cinderella. We like Free Willy. Which means we have a problem this morning. Because our Ezra Nehemiah series does not end particularly well. Last week we were inspired and unlifted, uh, uplifted as we considered this moment of joy in Jerusalem as the Israelites dedicated their new wall. So much joy that the joy in Jerusalem was heard far away. But this week, in chapter 13, we will be far less uplifted and inspired. Why the downer, anticlimactic ending? Because the biblical storyline is the preeminent example of narrative integrity and complexity, and it is 100% grounded in reality. We're not spinning yarns here to, to sell tickets and to fill movie theaters. We are telling the truth, and the truth is messy, and it's full of tension and it's full of dissonance. So those film connoisseurs are really going to love what we have on the menu for the next 30 minutes or so. However, the rest of us might end up appreciating this tension as well, mainly because of what it points to, which is actually far more inspiring and uplifting than last week's wall ceremony. Intriguing, isn't it? And by the way, in reaching the end of the book of Nehemiah, we're also reaching the end of the events that are narrated in the Old Testament. There are more books in the Old Testament 
after Nehemiah, but they deal with events that were concurrent or chronologically prior to the events in Ezra and Nehemiah. Or in some cases, they deal prophetically with events yet to come. So after Nehemiah, we have 400 or so years of biblical silence, and then we come to what we call the New Testament. Two reflections this morning as we conclude our series in Ezra and Nehemiah and face the tension we find in Nehemiah chapter 13. Number one, the failure of human resolve. And then number two, the triumph of God's faithfulness. The failure of human resolve and then secondly, the triumph of God's faithfulness. Let's start with that first reflection, the failure of human resolve. Two weeks ago in Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, we saw the Israelites rededicate themselves to obedience, specifically the covenantal obligations spelled out for them in the Mosaic law. So in other words, centuries before this, God had made a covenant with the Israelites and he had given them stipulations. He was going to be their God and they were going to be his people, which meant that they committed to do certain things and to not do other things, and all of this was spelled out for them in the Mosaic Law. But, to put it mildly, they struggled to do these things, and a very recent reading of the law, and we saw this in Nehemiah chapter 8, once again reminded them that they had some issues. So this rededication to obedience that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago was rightly motivated by what they saw in the law and by their confession of sin and by repentance, which are part of of the progression we talked about last week that lead to joy in the Lord. So their, their motivation was on point. And the rededication, here's what it looked like. Here's what it looked like. They were no longer going to marry foreigners. And remember the issue... Here wasn't that these folks were foreign. This is not ethnocentrism. The problem is that these foreigners were worshiping false gods, and when the Israelites married them, they inevitably participated in their idolatry. They weren't going to marry foreigners. They were also going to recover the holiness of the Sabbath day, mainly by no longer buying goods or grain on the Sabbath in keeping with the law. And they were going to take better care of God's house, that is, the newly rebuilt Jerusalem temple, namely by giving the tithes and the offerings they were supposed to be giving in service of said temple. That's what they were going to do. And notice that obedience and pursuit of holiness involves separation from practices that are pipelines for idolatry, and it involves cultivating habits that promote God-centered worship and pursuit of enjoying him and beholding his beauty. So obedience equals separation plus cultivation, and we'll see more about that later. All of this is so inspiring. We are very inspired, especially when we move from chapter 10 into chapters 11 and 12, and we see that this rededication to obedience, it prompted you know, sacrificial otherness, it prompted rejoicing, it prompted generosity, everything is just going great. But then we get a balloon pop for the ages here in Nehemiah chapter 13. All the air gets sucked out of the room. And here's what went down. 
We know that Nehemiah originally arrived in Jerusalem in 445 B.C., and he led a remarkably efficient wall-rebuilding project that was completed in the same year. Eventually, the Israelites rededic- or they dedicated that wall in this very lavish ceremony, a very joyful event that we talked about last week in chapter 12. I say eventually because it's not entirely clear when this dedication ceremony was, possibly right when they finished the wall, or possibly after the Israelites spent some time figuring out who was actually going to live in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was in bad shape and no one wanted to live there. And then in 433 B.C., after spending 12 years in Jerusalem and serving as the governor of Judah, Nehemiah went back to Persia. You see this in chapter 13, verse 6, where he had previously been a very prominent official in the court of the Persian king Artaxerxes I. You might recall from Nehemiah chapter 2 that Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah permission to go to Jerusalem for a very specific amount of time, though the text doesn't tell us what that time was. So apparently that time had expired, and an in-person check-in with the king was necessary. Zoom was not going to cut it, and I know that we can all feel that. He had to go back and be with the king in person. Upon his return to Persia, it did not take very long for Nehemiah to get this hunch that he still had some work to do back in Jerusalem. They needed to go back. So he asked Artaxerxes for permission to return to Jerusalem, and Artaxerxes granted this request. And again, you can see this in chapter 13, verse 6. We can't be sure how long Nehemiah was away from Jerusalem. I will tell you that to get from Jerusalem to where he was in Persia was about a 55-day journey, so it was at least 110 days, if you do the 55, and then I think that's what it is. I think it's 110 is what it is, 55 plus 55, but other text clues kind of make it seem like he was gone for somewhere around two to four years. So two to four-year absence from Jerusalem while he was in Persia, hobnobbing with the king, and then now he's back. When Nehemiah got back to Jerusalem after this two to four-year absence, oh boy, this is what he found. And you cannot make this stuff up. In his relatively brief absence, the Israelites had married foreigners, profaned the Sabbath, and neglected the temple. And not only did they blow it in precisely the three areas in which they had vowed covenantal obedience back in chapter 10, they blew it with some style. Now buckle up, because we are, we are going all in here on the magnitude of this failure, starting with the temple in verses 4 through 14. Eliashib, despite his prominent spiritual position as a priest, had reappropriated an entire temple chamber and given it to Tobiah as a glorified apartment. The high priest at the time was also named Eliashib, but this appears to be a different Eliashib who was just a priest, but nonetheless tasked with the very important role of managing the temple chambers. That reappropriated chamber, you can see this in verse 5, was supposed to be used as a storeroom for the tithes and the offerings given by the Israelites to sustain the temple worship. But Eliashib cleared all of that out. Why? So that Tobiah could live there and possibly conduct business. This is Tobiah the Ammonite, 
as in one of Nehemiah's primary enemies, as in the guy who did everything he could to undermine the Jerusalem wall rebuild, as in the guy who was probably Jewish, based on his name, but had gotten mixed up with the non-Jewish Ammonites and even become one of their officials and was therefore, in a sense, opposing the work of his own people. That guy, Eliashib, gave the temple as an apartment to that guy. And to make matters even worse, the only reason given for Eliashib's decision, and you can see this in verse 4, is that he and Tobiah were somehow related and basically bros. That's it. In other words, Eliashib was in such a compromised spiritual estate that he was willing to deprioritize the spiritual well-being of all Israel. Think about that. Simply to do a personal favor for a friend. On top of that, notice in verses 10 through 14 that Eliashib was definitely not the only Israelite official who was dropping the ball when it came to temple worship. And the temple was becoming so underserved. I told you this is, this is spectacular here. The temple was becoming so underserved that the Levites in charge of managing the temple didn't have enough resources to provide for their daily needs. So they straight up left Jerusalem and fled to their fields outside the city so that they could, you know, eat. And since temple worship was in this very sorry estate, it's not at all surprising to learn that Sabbath-keeping was equally compromised. Look at verses 15 through 18. People all over Judah were working on the Sabbath day, such as by treading wine presses. Plus, they were buying and selling goods on the Sabbath in Jerusalem, which probably meant that some of this was happening on the outskirts of the temple or even in the temple. And remember that Tobiah the Ammonite was probably conducting business from his chamber in the temple. And of course, all of this was a major violation of the Torah. The Mosaic Law. I mean, major. We're talking, we are now, we are lighting cigarettes in a fireworks store. That kind of no-no. Big time. And then finally, verses 23 and 24, the intermarriage thing. Depending on how we count, this is the third or fourth time this issue has come up in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is exhausting by itself. It just keeps happening. But this time, things were worse than ever. So many Jewish men had married pagan women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab that half of the children of these Jewish men could no longer speak the language of Judah, as in Hebrew, which also meant that their spiritual identity and religious heritage would just go into pot quickly, by the way. And even the family of Eliashib, the high priest, was caught up in all of this. His grandson married a foreign woman, and not just any foreign woman, by the way. You see this in verse 28. He married the daughter of Samballot, another one of Nehemiah's enemies. So one of Nehemiah's enemies is living in an apartment, basically in the temple, and another one of his enemies has now been married into his family, into the Jewish family. It's brutal. Church, do you see what's going on here? Our personal resolve, to obey God, even when we come to terms with our sin, like the Israelites did, and repent of it, and, and really mean it, that we're going to obey this time, like the Israelites really meant it. Even then, our resolve is 
is inadequate. And not just inadequate, it's like, it's spectacularly inadequate, as we've just been seeing here in Nehemiah chapter 13. Left to our own devices, we end up doing the things that we said we were not going to do, and, and not doing the things that we said we were going to do. And the reason I say our resolve, when I talk about our resolve being inadequate instead of Israelite resolve is this. This is why I say this. Raise your hand if you genuinely believe that your resolve is more robust and more efficacious than that of the Israelites. Of course it's not. You can read about this, for example, in Romans chapter 3. Accordingly, we wouldn't have been any more successful than the Israelites were at, at, at upholding the covenantal obligations spelled out for them in the law. Of course we wouldn't have done any better. So for being honest with ourselves, Israelite behavior is a very uncomfortable mirror, not an occasion for derision or judgmentalism. Now we have a huge problem on our hands, do we not? Actually, I would break this down into three huge problems. Problem number one, even though our series and Ezra and Nehemiah is called restoration. Full restoration at this point seems impossible. There have been some wins for the formerly exiled Israelites. You know, they left Babylon. They're finally re-inhabiting Jerusalem. They, they constructed a new temple and they, they built the new Jerusalem wall. There, there have been moments of genuine joy in the Lord. As the poet T.S. Eliot would put it, both the books of Ezra and Nehemiah have ended not with a bang, but with a whimper, and very similar whimpers of covenantal unfaithfulness. Problem number two, there are very serious consequences for covenantal unfaithfulness. The law itself spells out a laundry list of curses for disobedience that you can read about in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And when Nehemiah confronted Jewish officials for their unfaithfulness, one of his primary points, and you can see this in verse 18, was, Yo, guys, hello, didn't God very recently allow our enemies to destroy Jerusalem and bring your fathers into exile for the same kinds of disobedience you're practicing right now? And the answer is yes, that's exactly what had just happened. Problem number three. Remember that covenantal faithfulness, I think this is really important. Remember that covenantal faith, it wasn't merely pragmatic. It wasn't merely a tool for Israelite flourishing, though that was part of it. Their faithfulness as a holy and set-apart people was also intended to glorify God and reflect God's holiness to a watching world. So their disobedience obscured God's glory and it contradicted God's mission to bless all the peoples of the earth through the Israelites. That's a huge problem. A quick aside, if you will allow it, even though the people of God today are under a new covenant, and we'll get to that in a minute, this layer of our obedience, it still applies. Obedience is ultimately a God-glorifying participation in his mission that goes far beyond our personal well-being. 
And I say this because I'm beginning to detect too much what I would call individualism and pragmatism when it comes to Christian, mainly Western, takes on obedience. We're becoming way far too willing to dismiss obedience in certain areas because we're just not feeling it, and we don't think it benefits us personally. Forgetting that obedience is not just about us. It's about God, and it's about other people. I said it this week in, in the pastoral letter I wrote about the Delta variant. I'm really looking forward to not having to write those letters anymore, by the way. Man, isn't it exhausting to deal with all of this? I said it this week in the pastoral letter I wrote about the Delta variant. Scripture is far more communal than we tend to be here in the West. And by the way, that God works out his mission not so much through individuals, but through the body of Christ, corporate. So why do we pursue obedience even when we don't feel like it personally or see the benefits? Because we trust that God is nonetheless using our obedience for his restorative mission to make all the sad and miserable things of this world untrue and gather a people for himself to enjoy him forever. That's why. Because our decision-making matrix is far more communal than do I think this is working for me personally. Back to this point we were making about the problems raised by our lack of resolve. Restoration seems impossible. There are very serious consequences. And then God's holiness was being obscured and his mission contradicted. Those are the three problems that we run into because of our lack of resolve. Now what? What do we make of all of this? What a downer way to end a story. This is, this is not free willy at all. Isn't that how it goes? Well, actually, and you can kind of hear the deep movie voice here, can't you? This isn't the end of the story. I can't do it. My diaphragm or whatever it is doesn't go that low. This isn't the end of the story. Which brings us to our second reflection. The triumph of God's faithfulness. How did Nehemiah respond? to the failures he observed upon his return to Jerusalem. How did he respond? Number one, confrontation. On three occasions, you see this in verse 11, 17, and 25, Nehemiah is said to have confronted the Israelites, particularly the leaders. He didn't mess around at all. He boldly confronted the folks in charge. And the gist of the confrontation was, what in the world are you doing? That was a confrontation. So number one, confrontation. Number two, reformation. Surely the most vivid example of, rest, of restoration is, or sorry, reformation is found in verses eight and nine, in which Nehemiah addresses the, uh, the Tobiah shacking up in the, in the temple situation by doing what? He angrily throws Tobiah's furniture out of the chamber. Literally. He storms in there, starts taking Tobias' household goods, throws them out of the chamber. Then he orders the officials to cleanse the chamber, ritually and otherwise, and return the vessels and the offerings that were supposed to be there. So confrontation, reformation, and then number three, for lack of a better term, name-taking. Name-taking. In fact, one of the most name-taking events 
And the entire Bible occurs in verse 25 in the context of the Israelite men who were marrying foreigners. This is what the text says. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, if you're having a deja vu moment, that might be because Ezra pulled out his own hair in response to the intermarriage situation he confronted in Ezra chapter 9. So Ezra pulled out his own hair, and Nehemiah pulled out other people's hair. And while I was reading this, I was thinking, shoot, I have a two-year-old who does both of those things. So comparatively, these these actions here from Ezra and Nehemiah, these are pictures of of restraint compared to my two-year-old. So do both of them. And this is where things get interesting and shocking. Nehemiah chapter 13 actually is a picture of restraint. Yes, it is. Even though Nehemiah beat some guys up and pulled out their hair. And here's why. This this is about the 27 millionth time in the Old Testament, I'm exaggerating in case you couldn't tell, that we've encountered major Israelite disobedience And yet they're still here. The nation endures. They're still alive. And you might say, praise God, but what about the hair pulling? That that seems excessive. Remember those Deuteronomy chapter 28 curses I told you about a few minutes ago? The ones for covenantal disobedience? Those curses, and again, go read this later on today. Those curses involve things like Wasting diseases and drought and blight. And now I'm quoting, madness and blindness and confusion of mind. You shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually and there shall be no one to help you. And the idea is that all of this would ultimately end in total destruction. Let me tell you, if someone offers me a choice between a wasting disease, noonday blindness, and a hair pull, I'm going with the hair pull every single day. I will take it. Pull out as much as you want. So yes, there is divine restraint in the midst of this hopelessness. Seriously. Why? Because someone was coming. Because someone was coming. Someone who would, check this out, the Bible is cool, I've said that before, but now you know it for real. Someone who would confront some wayward spiritual leaders, who would cleanse the Jerusalem temple, which had become compromised by spiritual laxity and greed. But, and now it gets really, really good. Instead of beating some people up and pulling out their hair, he himself was beaten and eventually killed. There's, where, there's the turn. And in doing so, this is what Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 says, in doing so, Christ is Jesus Christ, redeemed us from the curse, there's that curse word, of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged 
on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in other words, 400 years after Nehemiah, more than 400 years after Nehemiah, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, brought the covenantal curses upon himself, though he had perfectly kept the covenantal obligations, so that in him we, that is Jews and Gentiles alike, as you can see in this text, might receive the covenantal blessings. Jesus went to the cross and rose again, very important, so that lawbreakers like ourselves might call upon his name, repent of our idolatrous behavior, and be God's people forever, which is the ultimate covenant blessing. The blessing, it's, it's not so much a mansion on prime real estate just beyond the pearly gates. That's not really the blessing. The blessing is actually God himself. That's the blessing. We get God in all of his beauty and wonder. And when we call upon the name of Jesus, when we call upon the name of Jesus in repentant faith, know that this is a blessing sealed by the blood of the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated when he came to this earth and shed his blood on the cross. It is a done deal. It is a permanent restoration of our relationship with God that culminates in our residence in the new city, Jerusalem, free from sin and idolatry, free from any threats, foreign or domestic, no more Tobias, no more sand ballots. That's good news, isn't it? That's really good news. That's quite the announcement. Though our relationship with God has been fractured by our idolatrous lawlessness, and though our resolve to iron out this problem on our own is wholly inadequate, restoration is possible in Jesus. How about that? So what do we do with this? This is, this is like old-fashioned revival preaching right here. I was just thinking, you know what? We need this right now. All of us. So number one, what do we do with this? Come to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you would describe yourself as one of those idolatrous lawbreakers and you don't know what to do, you understand that the curses are certainly arrayed against you. Come to Jesus, the one who became a curse for you on the tree, on the cross, and receive full and perfect restoration. That starts now in a sense, but is incomplete and will be completely realized when we're in the new city, Jerusalem. I was just talking about city that's going to be so spectacular that we're not even going to need a temple because Jesus himself will be the temple and we will just be there worshiping in his presence. It's going to blow your socks off. Number two, those of you who would say that you're followers of Jesus, do you really understand and believe this gospel? Seriously. And here, here's what I want to ask. Let's mention, about two years ago, a survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center 
An Arizona Christian University found that a majority of Americans who describe themselves as Christian, 52%, accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. I am here today to give you a friendly reminder that that is impossible. But I see the survey data. I have conversations in our city, and works keeps coming up as, a, as this means or pseudo-means of acceptance before God. I go to church. I participate in all these spiritual rhythms. Your resolve is not good enough. It cannot accomplish full restoration. And oh, by the way, it is exhausting to walk through this life in that capacity. It will burn you out. It will wear you out. You will be miserable. Either you'll be somewhat successful in your own mind and be just hopelessly prideful, or you'll be beyond depressed. You'll be discouraged if you're failing. Number two. And then uh, just one more word. I I wanted to mention a word about obedience. Does this mean that obedience is just who cares, whatever? No. In the New Testament, Jesus reaffirms all kinds of different obediences. He summarizes the laws of loving God and, and loving your neighbor. Read the Sermon on the Mount, which has all kinds of ethical implications. Obedience continues. But instead of obedience being a means of gaining acceptance before God, obedience changes into this very other interested zeal for their well-being and the glory of God. And actually, obedience becomes a vehicle in which we can better behold and enjoy the greatness of God. Religion, and I'm kind of paraphrasing someone here, religion is basically, you know, you, you, you do good things in order to get acceptance from God. Christianity, the gospel is, you are accepted by God through Jesus. And so now obedience is a means of enjoying, of beholding the wonder and the beauty of God. Obedience becomes an opportunity to experience joy in the Lord. Isn't that something? Amen. Every week at City Church, we approach the Lord's table together. And let me just let Jesus talk to you here through the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was to be betrayed, shared a meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he took the bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body given for you, broken for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. And in a similar manner, after the meal, Jesus took the cup, and as he poured it, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. Apostle Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again, because he rose again. He himself was beaten, he became a curse, so that we might enjoy the blessings of God's covenant and live with him forever. I pray that you would eat and drink with hope and joy this morning, followers of Jesus. And if you're here and you would not say that you're a follower of Jesus, we would encourage you to reflect on what we've just been talking about. Maybe this has reoriented the whole way that you think about Christianity. And if we've been articulating or, or living out, probably more likely, some sort of theology that makes it look like all of this is works-based, that is our bad. And hopefully this corrects your thinking this morning. I would love to have conversations with you about what it means to follow Jesus. 
after I pray, there's going to be a, an elder or a deacon here or here with a basket. They have communion packets, and they'll simply take a packet out of the basket and drop it into your hands when you come and approach them. So just make a line. They'll drop the packet, and then once you have it, you can eat and drink when you want. There's also a basket. should be on the hospitality table if you'd rather go there as well and take. And I'd encourage you to do so. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do praise you for this meal. Nourish us with joy in light of these beautiful new covenant promises that we're talking about this morning, and I pray that this would be a, a difficult yet robust opportunity to confess and acknowledge sin, creeping idolatries that have infiltrated our hearts. For those that don't know Christ, might that change? Spirit, would you work on their lives even now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
you please stand with us and continue worshiping together? Standing on this mountain top, looking just how far we've come, knowing that for every step you were with us. Kneeling on this battleground, seeing just how much you've done, knowing that for victory was your power in us. Scars and struggles on the way, but with joy our hearts can say, yes, our hearts can sing. Never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. You are faithful. and struggles on the way but with joy our hearts can say yes our hearts can sing never once did we ever walk alone never once did you leave us on our own cause you are faithful
please remain standing for our benediction. Lord, bless you for being here to worship with us this morning. I uh, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Consider spending a few moments uh, greeting each other. And to those of you who have completed degrees um, this past weekend and who are walking and getting diplomas, congratulations. We love you. Really, really excellent work, especially considering how hard this past couple of years has been for those studying. So really, we praise God for you. Hear this benediction, and then I will sing the doxology together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.
Jesus. 